Hey, one more thing before you go. Have you ever asked yourself, am I an alcoholic? Could I be a gray drinker? What exactly is gray drinking and will it affect my relationships? How can yoga, meditation and physical activity help? As you all know, I am an advocate of all three of those. Stay tuned, we're going to answer these questions and more about a gray area in alcohol consumption. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. This is one more thing before you go. Are you one of those individuals that whenever you have a tough day, or you feel a little bit anxious, is you grab a glass of wine or a beer to help you relax? What happens when you have to have another one to take the edge off that reality or that really tough day? Is that totally acceptable in today's society? Or is it? According to Kimberly Dawn Newman, in an article in Forbes from April 2022, many people who drink alcohol think their consumption falls within the acceptable range for alcohol use. But that might not be true. Gray area drinking, GAD, is that muddy space between social and destructive drinking, and slipping into that gray area drinking is much easier than most people really think. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism defines heavy drinking for men as four drinks on any day, 14 plus drinks a week, and for women as three drinks on any given day, seven or plus drinks a week. My guest in this episode is Carrie Schell who three decades ago began her career as a midwife. Over the years, her role in the health and wellness space has evolved with graduate school, becoming a yoga instructor, and as the director of health and wellness, creating innovative programs at an addiction center, and presently as a speaker and an author. She comes from a perspective of having been a great drinker herself. We're going to learn through her journey how you can recognize whether or not you fall into this category and how Carrie's mind, body, soul, spirit approach to wellness along with her humor and wisdom can help you with your desire to seek wellness welcome to the show hey thank you for having me i'm i'm so happy to be here to talk about this you know i i thank you for coming on the show i really appreciate you're going to share some uh, amazing wisdom and i hope to inspire people to motivate and to educate them to kind of have a better understanding as uh, we spoke about before we started, um, you know, I grew up with a dysfunctional family. Both my parents were alcoholics. So I know that there's a slight difference between, and it may be a larger difference between alcoholism and gray drinking. So I'm fascinated to uh, kind of learn from you. Okay, great. Yeah. There, as you say, there is actually a difference between being an alcoholic and a gray drinker. An alcoholic, it's a clinical diagnosis where it is commonly accepted that it is a disease. And so the course of treatment for alcoholism and addiction is that you abstain 100% from the substance or from alcohol. Gray drinking, as you were saying, it's this gray area. You know, what is acceptable? What is too much? It is a, it, it's more of a subjective than an objective thing. And so we get into this murky place where we really start listening to our inner guide, into our intuition about what we're feeling about our alcohol consumption. You know, that's, and I, and I, I, I understand that. Um, we'll have a little conversation, you know, as we go throughout this conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife 
falls into that category. And she finally recognized that about a year ago, maybe about a year and a half ago, I think. Yeah, a year and a half ago. She finally recognized that and she took a proactive approach within herself to recognize it. And, and we didn't understand it as gray drinking. No. And that's the thing. The whole term gray drinking is relatively a new a new phrase. Uh, so people aren't familiar. So when they hear gray drinking, their ears kind of perk up. And, you know, through COVID especially, I think it put different layers of stress and burden and fears and worry, anxiety upon us. And where we were in isolation in our own homes and our social networks and our families were now removed from us, maybe some things that used to support us in different ways. Um, many of us, including myself, we, we would turn to alcohol. And it's not that you're getting drunk every day, but you start to realize, wow, okay, I'm having a glass of wine before dinner, I'm having a glass of wine with dinner, and maybe a glass of wine after dinner. And not that I was ever intoxicated, but over the duration of six, seven hours, I've had two or three glasses of wine. And one really then, as you said with your wife, something just triggers and you start to have this little nagging feeling, you know, am I drinking too much? Should I cut back? You know, do I need to take a break? And those are some really good indicators that you may need to step back and really reevaluate your relationship with alcohol if you're having those thoughts. So that's a good starting point. I, I agree with that. And, you know, as, as my viewers and listeners know that I used to be a DUI cop. So Understanding from uh, coming from a dysfunctional family background of having two parents that were actual alcoholics, my father died at 39 years old of alcoholism. Mm. Um, you know, it it opened my eyes to um, a, a more in depth look at at alcoholism and alcohol and how it affects people and how it affects the family. I worked domestic violence for another four years in regard to that, and I dealt a lot with you know alcoholism. Um, until I had actually, when you and I first started communicating, I had mm. not known anything about gray drinking in all of my career in the things that I had understood from there. So I think that we as a society, do you think that it is a, and, and I, I really don't want to, to, to box this into something, but maybe a, I always put my phone on do not disturb and I forgot. <laughs> I'm sorry. It happens. No, no worries. It happens. Um, yeah. My wife was handing me tea and I thought, nah, 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 I got out of, I got out of my, out of my routine. Um, <laughs> but the advantage of digital, I can cut that off. Uh, Perfect. But yeah, it, um, as an individual that uh, grew up with dysfunctional, uh, with a dysfunctional family and understanding alcohol from that perspective and understanding it from a DUI enforcement officer, as well as the domestic violence officer. You know, I never really had known the term gray drinking. So in regard to that, do you think that it is a, like a, maybe a, a hidden addiction that the society really quite isn't aware of yet? Well, I think my observations, I haven't done any clinical research or collected data. 
However, I do feel that by and large society as a whole is consuming more alcohol regularly. So that benchmark, you know, before if you would have, you know, some drinks on the weekend, when you are with friends or on a date or whatever the case may be, that maybe escalates or it, it translates into the week now, as I was saying, for my situation, it's you'd have a glass of wine at night or two. And I would, you know, self-rationalize and say to myself, well, if I lived in France, I wouldn't even be concerned about this. You know, what's the big deal? I'm just being uptight and and being too rigid with myself. But then I would set up little systems for myself to almost reward myself, to give my pers myself permission. So I'm a very pretty organized person and, you know, I'd have my to-do list and the way I would almost earn that glass of wine at the end of the night was by, you know, finishing work I had to do, different things with family, kids, housework, whatever the case may be, get a workout in. Did I drink a liter or two liters of water a day? You know, and I would make sure that I was doing all of these tasks so that it was normalizing my alcohol consumption, right? And so I think there are a lot of people like that. And I think also that our socializing has really come to include and integrate an alcohol component. You know, you go out with friends and there's always alcohol at hand or you, even if you're doing something healthy, you go for a walk or a hike and then you go have a meal and you have some drinks or that kind of thing. So I think by and large, how much we're consuming on the average has increased. And what that does is it makes it increasingly challenging to gain some perspective on where you fit in that. Because if I'm starting to question that I'm drinking too much, but everyone that I socialize and have in my life drinks the same amount, of course the feedback I'm going to get is that no, I'm okay and how much I'm drinking is normal. Regardless of that inner guide telling me like, hey, heads up, you know, maybe you need to take a step back and do some serious evaluation of where you're at. I, I agree with that. I think that society, I mean, for years and years and years, I mean, even TV, would, would you see even way back when, you know, 50s, 60s TV, 70s TV, 80s TV, mm -hmm. you know, somebody would come home, first thing they do is pour a drink, sit down with a drink and a smoke, you know, like that was portrayed as normal. That was portrayed as, well, that's what you're supposed to do when you come home from work. You're supposed mm -hmm. to come in. You're supposed to grab a, a drink of scotch or a martini or something and go sit down and relax. And that's how you perform and you function every day. So I think from a societal perspective, they've normalized alcohol consumption in such a way that we, if we start to see ourselves or perceive ourselves out of the norm, then we think there's something wrong with that. That's right. And it's and sometimes it's really challenging to be that person because there's a lot that is associated with that. If I am in a relationship and my partner drinks as much, so how does that impact my relationship? If I decide I'm gonna take a step back and not drink, but my partner isn't on the same page and they don't feel they need to take a step back and they're not willing to, they themselves engage in a break to support you, even just, even if they don't feel they need to take a break themselves, but if they're not willing to take the break for you in that, in that relationship, then 
that adds a layer of complication. Likewise, in our friendships, yeah. it depends. You know, you can make people very uncomfortable. It's very interesting how if you're not having an alcoholic beverage, people will just encourage you to have one or wonder what's wrong and why aren't you and go ahead and have one. You know, it's very much a normal thing. And in those situations, I think people don't want that mirror turned on them. And in acknowledging that, yeah, you know what, Carrie, maybe maybe you are drinking too much. If, if they themselves are drinking the same amount, then that inadvertently puts the mirror on them and they will have to do some work and some, uh, you know, some inner work to see where they're at and why are we going to alcohol, you know? Yeah, sometimes they, have to, they would make, it would force them to look at themselves definitely. and their choices and their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, definitely understand that. Um, can we backtrack just a little bit? Can For you, sure. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Toronto, Canada. Now, Toronto is about midpoint in the United States. So Toronto would be above New York. Above by, New York City on the east yeah, side. Yeah, New York City. So like kind of center east coast. And then I moved out to the east coast of Canada to the province of Nova Scotia. Um, so that would be think Maine. It's just almost, you know, a hop, skip and a jump from Maine. And that's where I um, raised our family. It was a very quiet, lovely, picturesque, safe town. And now for the last year, I've been living in Costa Rica, as you can tell by my little backdrop here. Yeah, I love the backdrop. That's a yeah. fantastic backdrop you have. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the uh, the that's what my yeah my backyard is hoping to look like that pretty soon here. Our palm trees are excellent. <laughs> nice, good. Um, do you have any brothers or sisters? What was your family like? Yeah, so when I grew up, we had an idyllic family. I was the youngest. I have four older brothers, and um, our parents were relatively young compared to our friends family so our parents were like the cool parents and they would do all the fun stuff and they were the football coaches and the head of the cub pack and um it was a very lovely childhood i was very much a tomboy of course the youngest with four brothers i don't think my mom knew what to do with me so you know i was always covered in scabs and bruises and my front teeth were black from you know, falling down and out of trees and that kind of thing. Um, but that all changed when I was 10. My parents got a divorce. And in the mid-70s, that was pretty unheard of in the, the neighborhood yes. we grew up in. And it was very traumatic. Our family literally imploded. And my brother, next in age to me at the age of 13, um, had a drink of alcohol and found that that gave him relief. So at a very young age, turned to alcohol. Um, my couple of my brothers went to live with my dad, you know, couples. So what was a very tight family where we did everything together. Now it was a, a very broken, isolated family. And, um, you know, decades later, my dad actually developed substance issues and, he then stopped the substance, but he had a, he just transferred the substance to alcohol. And so my, my dad, I presume like yours died as an alcoholic, but he was later, you know, he was an older gentleman at that point. So yeah, we've had, uh, my family, there was a lot of dysfunction 
uh, definitely great drinking, uh, Irish background, and not only that, but I think just my family grew up in, like my grandfather grew up in the hotel business, had hotels, and so, and the restaurant business was in the family. So being hospitable and having that sense of hospitality always included, you know, when you had guests over dinner parties, there was lots of alcohol, you know, there was wine and beer and cocktails and, and everything involved at weddings, at funerals. So that it's certainly part of how I grew up and how part of how I am as an adult, I feel like, oh, if I'm a gracious host and I'm having people, then of course I need to offer them alcohol and just, uh, trying to develop new patterns around that. And certainly there, the gray drinking is something present. Yeah, that I mean, that's a, an amazing journey. I mean, within itself, mm -hmm. I understand that and I can relate to that. Not, not the four brothers part. I've, <laughs> I've got I, I am, I've got an older sister and a younger brother. My older sister is uh, a few years older than me, but we get along much better than me and my younger brother. My mm -hmm. younger brother actually um, is an alcoholic, yeah, uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, he took a different path. Uh, my sister, she has kind of a inclination. You know, if she let herself, she could be, but she really mm -hmm. monitors it like I did. Because when you're, as you know, when you reach a certain age and you have a better understanding of certain things, you you see it as well as experience it. I was the middle child, so the middle child always takes care of, mm -hmm. you know, they make the phone calls. I'd call him from my dad when he was too drunk to go to work. I had to call him from right. my mother when she was too drunk right. to go to work. I had yeah. to be the, the mini adult, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But it gave me a different outlook, you know, from that perspective. Um, you, you, along with your brothers, um, growing up in that environment, obviously, same environment here. That's what I'm saying. I understand it. And it's more prevalent, especially for people um, from the 60s and the 70s, in the 80s, early 80s, because the parties were a normal part of life. My parents had parties every weekend. And mm -hmm. they had colleagues from work come in. And, you know, it, every weekend, it would have to it'd be a party. And, yeah. you know, you kind of, when you grew up in that environment, as you know, it, it looks normal. It, it does. And in fact, so normal when I would meet other people and they would say, oh, <clears throat> I don't drink. Uh, my parents never drank. My parents never even drank wine or anything. I'd find that so unusual. I'd be like, really? That's how odd. Like how many people go through life not yeah. drinking or having wine at home? Or I get a lot of families don't have it during the week, but it was like, okay, on the weekends, that's the time at the least that you would have, you know, a bottle of wine or you would, you know, go out with friends and you'd have some drinks or have people over and have some drinks. So yeah, it was definitely a, a way that people live and i think it's can it, it still is today i mean look at all the marketing mm. and entertainment and everything you know if you are part if you are living a good life and you're happy and fulfilled and and have friends and are beautiful and this and that you're you have a drink in your hand and yeah. that's part of the culture that that has been cultivated and it's really challenging to step away from that yeah, I think, and I, I something that you said really kind of hit home as well. I don't drink, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, I used to drink, not not heavily, but you know, every once in a while, I uh, would have a glass of wine or something. I, I'm not a beer guy, but 
I'd have a glass of wine and in several, but I, I don't drink now because it affects my rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I we go someplace and, you know, they'd offer a drink. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't drink. They pause and you kind of get kind of a weird look. Like, really? Mm-hmm. You don't drink? <laughs> and then I've even had people ask me, so um, do you go to AA? Right. You know, it's like. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I was having this conversation with someone else. It's interesting how um, if you're not drinking, you'll, you've. You may feel you need to tell people, well, I'm not drinking alcohol. And it's really, yeah. in a sense, the fact that we feel that we need to state that or that that needs to be stated as opposed to just like, oh, I'll have like a soda water and lime or, or whatever yeah. the case may be. It's interesting how you feel you need to explain why you aren't the norm. Like, oh, I don't drink. Now, the conversation may end there. But there's a need yeah. to feel like, don't ask me again or don't pressure me. I don't drink. Where it's it's a very odd circumstance. We were just talking about that the other day. It, it is. I mean, and, and it feels sometimes it feels awkward in some situations. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've I have felt awkward, even though I'm very confident in my position. It's kind of one of those things where you kind of go, well, they just kind of look at you and they just give you this side eye, so to speak. Right. Like you should be. What's the matter with mm-hmm. you? In reality, there's nothing wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with me. If we don't want to drink, we don't want to drink. Exactly. And I think we get sucked into believing when our behaviors and what we do had always involved having alcohol. Yeah. It's hard for people to imagine, well, how do you enjoy yourself or have fun without it? When everything you had done, say, at a party and or dancing, or whatever the case may be, yeah. you would have a drink. We mislead ourselves and present ourselves misinformation that it was the alcohol that was providing the fun, the happiness, the joy, as opposed to, no, it was the connection with my friends. It was having yeah. a sense of community. Yeah. It was moving my body and dancing because we were born to move, and and we love feeling music and joy. And It's not the alcohol, but it really gets hard yeah. to separate it and people then will look at you like you're the buzzkill. Like, oh, great, you're yeah. not having a drink, so now you're gonna re- you're gonna wreck our time. Great, thank you. And it's gonna run the night. Yeah, it's really a, a bizarre situation that we have bought into feeling that it's the alcohol as opposed to just my personhood that enjoys the time just and enjoying, I enjoy being yeah, with enjoy you. Life. And, yeah, enjoy yeah. life. I mean, we can enjoy life without having the necessity for that. Mm-hmm. Um, did you uh, did you go to university? I did go to university. Where'd you want to I be went when you to up? yeah, I went to university for history and political science. Not that I knew what I was going to do with it. Um, and after that, I did my last year of university in France, actually. And I'm jealous. From I yeah, it was it was lovely. Um, from there, I started a second degree. I actually applied to do my master's in history, and I also auditioned for theater. So I found it interesting that you were earlier mentioning doing some different type of work from your police career. And so I got into both programs, and at the time, my dad said to me, this was prior to addiction, alcoholism, 
he said, you know, you're just doing the masters for the prestige, do what you love. So I did, I went to Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I started a theater degree and I was attending a lecture. There was a guest speaker on campus one evening and her name was Ina Mae Gaskin and she is the author of a, a very well-known book called Spiritual Midwifery. And she's what is known as basically the grandmother of modern day midwifery. So midwives who weren't just taught by apprenticeship, but they went through formalized education, had a scope of practice, very safe. And in that lecture, I realized, wow, that's what I want to do. I've never really heard of midwives growing up in Toronto. There were no midwives. Um, and so Ina Mae became my mentor and she helped me figure out my program of education and I moved to Texas and I became a midwife in Texas. And from Texas, I moved back to the East Coast where I practiced as a midwife for many, many years. Can you, can you help us understand? I mean, I understand what a midwife is, but you can help, help some of our listeners and viewers understand what a midwife does. Of course. So think of your family doctor when you go when you're pregnant and you get all you have all your prenatal care with your doctor. And then when doctors used to deliver babies, now it's mostly obstetricians. Um, and the, so a midwife will deliver all of that prenatal care. They will be with you through the entire labor and the delivery. They'll deliver the baby and then they'll subsequently do all of the postpartum follow-up care for the next month to six weeks. So you're a primary, a regulated, licensed primary health practitioner. And what I used to like to tell people is a general family physician does, you know, a six to eight week stint in obstetrics. And then they're basically qualified, you know, to do your prenatal care or deliver a baby. Whereas a midwife in Canada, it's a four year university degree. Um, wow. And in, in the United States, depending on what state you're in, the regulations for the educational requirements for licensure are different, but there are, it's a very regulated practice and scope of practice for midwives. You would think it would be normalized uh, across the country to make it uh, more, um, not concise, standardized. but standardized. Thank you. Yes. I have, yeah, that, I, I, I haven't had enough coffee or tea this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was a word in there somewhere. Um, well, I mean, that's an amazing opportunity for, for you mm -hmm. and for those women that you help in regard to, uh, I mean, I was there both times that our kids were born. We have two kids. And I was in the delivery room at the time. Um, I didn't do what you did. But you know, it gives you a new perspective on life and the value of life. When you experience yeah. that, I, you know, at least from my perspective, I felt that uh, connection from that. So that 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 would be in that would be an awesome way to um, to understand life. <laughs> uh, it was a, a true gift. And personally, um, I was really blessed to be part of births where at the time I didn't have any children and I got to be a part of labors and deliveries where it was a very beautiful, peaceful experience. It wasn't what the imaging on sitcoms and movies was showing me where, you know, the woman from the first contraction is screaming and, you know, saying, I hate you, the husband, and look what you did to me. There were, I was 
part and witness some very beautiful bursts. And at that moment, I said to myself, well, that if it can be done that way, then that's how I'm having, you know, right. why would I, why would I buy into that? It has to be this traumatic, horrible experience when I see that there is a way to have it a very peaceful experience. That doesn't mean it's not intense. You know, I like to say to what, you know, it's, it is how we definitely de define and how we set ourselves up. I'm not saying that having a child naturally isn't a very intense experience. It's overwhelming. And in fact, what you feel for women who haven't had a baby, pain, I don't think is the right word to describe it. It is an, it's a different intensity that yeah. I don't think has a word yet. Um, I always say, you know, it's like, you're bringing a new soul into the world through your through your being. It's going to be yeah. an incredibly intense experience. But if we learn to let go and release and just ride with it, it's a it's a very different journey. So I was really fortunate that with my my pregnancies, I love my pregnancies. I I had very positive birthing experiences. And it's funny, that's something that's part in me that I really want to, in the next chapter, help younger women, I think, rediscover and recultivate a woman birthing culture where we support each other and we encourage each other rather than saying, just get an epidural, yeah. just like get knocked out, don't worry about it, where we've lost the notion of how having a child can be one of the most incredibly empowering experiences and that as a woman you're blessed to be able to experience if that's delivering life yeah yeah it, it is I, I as a cop i was involved in in, in on emergency mm -hmm. portions of that it was more that was my job yes and, and it was amazing you know get me wrong but being in the delivery room when my wife had our two kids it was a completely different perspective watching and participating in the in the birth of both of my daughters, our daughters. Mm -hmm. I said our because I just pointed to my wife in the other room. Our <laughs> <laughs> she did all the hard work. She punched me though. She did punch me. <laughs> <laughs> I made the mistake of my brother in law's Italian. He brought in garlic pizza. I ate pizza. They went over to help her and she just a little the bit. garlic yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i think it's also different because here you are with the person you love most in the world going through this journey that even though you're the most supportive wonderful partner you really don't understand and have an experience mm -hmm. that intensity and so you feel no matter what a great partner you are and what a incredible job you're doing to help your partner through the delivery and the labor that I know that for men, there's always that part that of them that feels very helpless, yeah. that no matter how, how much care you're providing, because you know, ultimately, as you said, it is your wife, it, you know, you can rub the back, you can do these different comfort measures, you can say all the right things. But in the end, it is the woman who is delivering the baby. And so you have yep. to, there is a sense of helplessness there is. to a certain measure. Yeah, there is 100%. But 
I would not trade the experience for anything. It, it was one no, of the, the, both of them were the, one of the best experiences in my life, you know, in, in, in over anything, actually. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, it's right up there with marrying my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because we're saying that out loud. Um, and I mean that we've been together for 34 years. So wow. yeah, it's, you know, we've been through ups and downs through everything. So yeah, it really, it was really an amazing thing. So thank you for doing that for the world. I think that uh, for women all over the world, or all over mm -hmm. the country, I should say, not the world. Um, I think what you provide also allowed you to have the empathy, the compassion, and the ability to understand helping people through through grade drinking. You know what? That's I. I'm so glad you said that because I used to question when I, after I did my graduate work and with my yoga instructor background and different things, and I was offered the position at the addiction center and given the the latitude to develop the, the wellness program. And from my research, knowing that yoga, meditation, and physical activity are in many cases more effective in dealing with alcoholism and addiction than traditional therapies, I would still question because <laughs> in my personal life, there was there were drinking issues like with my husband and then with my brother and my dad. And, and I would just, I'd come home from the center, just praying that alcoholism would be taken from my life. And yet I would do this work at the center where it was very powerful, very impactful. And I was, I was really conflicted. Like, God, why am I here? Like what I'm not understanding. Do you not hear me praying to not have alcohol in my life at all? And yet I would go home sometimes and unwind with a glass of wine. And yet I knew I was having a tremendous impact. And then I realized, okay, the work as a midwife, helping women through the most intimate life transforming journeys, they can experience and through all that vulnerability is very similar to helping the addict or the alcoholic go through this incredible life transforming journey where they are at their most vulnerable when they are in recovery when they've made that choice to stop their substance and they're rediscovering themselves and having to do all that work and i realized really that's my calling or that's my gift or my strength you know to be able to look at, at an individual and see the inner light within and see their heart and be able to connect in a way that helps me guide them through those journeys. So yeah, you're right. The being a midwife, it was all part of, it's all part of that same road. And it took me a while to understand that. And personally, I was confused personally and professionally, like what the heck am I doing in an addiction center? And now that I understand that, I have such a different comfort level. And then, you know, through COVID, realizing, okay, Carrie, you are a great drinker. You yourself need to step back and you need to take a break and you need to put the brakes on and own that you're drinking too much. No, you're not an alcoholic. And no, people, you know, you've got your stuff together. And that's the thing about great drinkers. You probably have healthy relationships. 
you probably are great at your job or your job's doing well. You have, you know, nothing signals or puts a red flag up where someone's like, yeah, you better stop drinking because you know, you, you keep screwing up at work or maybe your marriage would be better if you were drinking less. So that becomes part of the challenge. And also a lot of great drinkers, as I would say, you could be fit, you could be healthy, you could have an outward appearance. And also for the great drinker, that might be that last vice. Like, Carrie, don't tell me I have to give up that, you know, I've got my stuff together in every area. I tick every box. Please don't tell me I have to give up wine. So it, it's a very challenging area, the whole great drinking thing. It's a very subjective journey. Um, so it's one that if you're having these questions or doubts that you, I, I would really strongly recommend you do. I have a 10 day reset. We'll talk about this after. It's a free program, 10 days, and it just gives you time away from drinking to make an informed decision. And that's what I'm all about. Creating, helping people create space where they have the clarity to really reflect, you know, am I feeling better physically? Mentally, am I feeling better? Spiritually is not drinking, providing me uh, an openness or awareness or a connection in my spiritual life that maybe I was dulling out, putting a little veil there before. So I'm all about creating opportunity and space to make informed decisions about how do you want your relationship with alcohol to be? Now, if we can touch upon and, and we may have done this inadvertently through part of the conversation, but mm -hmm. um, can you help us understand or define um, what exactly gray drinking is? I mean, I from a from an alcohol perspective, in growing up with two alcoholic parents, you know, I watched them drink in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. It was like a they needed the alcohol in order to function. At at mm -hmm. at some point, it was one of those things where it was a necessity. It wasn't a just come home at night and have a beer once in a while. It was a necessity. So, what is the difference? What do you? How do you define gray drinking? Yeah, you know, I should actually just write a little definition. But as, as I've been saying, it's a very subjective thing. And for different people, it will look differently. So I think it's really when you're starting to wonder, am I drinking too much? Or you wake up and you say, shoot, I really need to cut back. I think I'm drinking too much. And for me, it was getting into like an everyday couple glasses of wine thing. And for other people, they would look at that and they wouldn't say it's a problem because they would look at me and everything was going well in my life. But on my personal level, I don't want to have a substance in my life that I need to pay attention to or where it's drawing my attention. I think with alcohol, you want to get to the point where you can take it or leave it. So it's, it's, you know, if you liken it to eating habits or how you eat, if you used to, you know, be overweight and you see a lot of junk food, but then you made the decision to become very mindful and you eat really well, whole foods, you've cut out the refined sugars and a lot of your carbs and the gross stuff. And so now that you see a piece of cake, it doesn't even draw your attention. Yeah, the odd time you'll have a piece of cake, 
but it's not how you'd have those cravings before. So the same thing with alcohol. I think you want to get to that place where it's not on your mind. Like I was at the place where I would do like a little mental inventory. Do I have a bottle of wine so I can have a glass of wine at the end of the day? And for me, I, I don't want to be in that position. I, I want to have more control. I want to be, I want to find other ways that I can experience my emotions, whether that glass of wine helped me relax. Now, when I say it helped me relax, you get to the place where you realize it wasn't the alcohol, it wasn't the wine that was making me relax. What it was, was me taking time to honor me. I would get a nice glass out, I would go through the ritual, you know, it's a little ritual, but that ritual would honor me every day and it would create time and space for me. So we realize that we need to have those little spaces, those rituals that I can slow down at the end of the day and I can just exhale. And it wasn't the wine that was letting me exhale, it was me slowing down and taking the time. And I would take the time because I was enjoying the glass of wine. Well, I can do that in other ways. And it's about realizing that and finding those other ways to really create space to acknowledge and honor those emotions, whether it's celebrating, whether it's, you know, had a stressful day and needing to relax, whether we're angry, whether we're depressed or anxious, whether we're bored. We need to find ways to experience those emotions that doesn't necessarily involve putting alcohol into our bodies. And so that's why I really stay away from having a very rigid definition and I think your listeners out there, if anything's twinging in them that this is resonating at all, that's a pretty good sign that you need to step back and take a break from drinking for a bit to give yourself some time to evaluate and assess what you want alcohol to be in your life. Yeah, that, Sorry, it's not more clear cut than that. No, but no. I, I, I think know. that you did a very good job in, in helping people understand the differences because alcoholism is a disease. It, it, and I know that a lot of people say it's not, but um, you know, in, in the environments that I have grown up with and in my previous profession, including getting certification as a drug and alcohol abuse counselor, mm -hmm. you know, um, it, it, alcoholism is a disease. And sometimes those individuals cannot, it's like any addiction. You know, it, it, you can define that within food addiction. You can define the same need um, or what you feel is a need to, to function daily with the help of something, whether it be alcohol or drugs or food or, you know, unfortunately, cutting or, you know, anything that you feel you need to utilize in order to function on a daily basis is that could be detrimental to your health and your well-being and of those around you creates this environment where we have to de de kind of uh, delineate which where that line is drawn mm -hmm. and i and no, i think exactly yeah i think you've you've kind of you've kind of put the line there in helping to understand um and i know that and it, these couple of questions here, I do have a couple of questions in regard to that. It can mm -hmm. affect both men and women. Yes. Oh, from, definitely. And from all and classes. And, you know, I, like just to, to back up a bit, you know, as 
humans, we have an innate need to connect with one another. Yeah. It's part of us. It's, we weren't meant to live in isolation. We're, we're meant to, that's why we have our emotions to share our, our joy and our love and our sorrows and our grief. But when we can't do that, when we can't connect and bond with others, especially because of trauma, abuse, neglect, yeah. mental illness, you will, you know, as you said, as an addiction specialist, people don't just become alcoholics because they like the taste of beer. You know, in most yeah. cases, there, there could be a mental illness there. There could be abuse. There could have been trauma. There could have been something that there's, there's something there that is preventing them with connecting and bonding with something in a healthy way. And so they'll bond with whatever is readily accessible in something that fills that void. And as you said, it could be alcohol, drugs, shopping, cutting. It could be porno. It could be your cell phone. It could be anything that gives you that sense of connection and relief. And we're finding that we're becoming as a society with technology and with our screens that we are becoming more isolated and it is creating more issues and so as one becomes more present in our life so does the other we're we're finding that our connections uh person to person how we really need them to be have been distanced and they're not mm -hmm. it's not the same even though it's great in you know, stopgap measures. You have a family member that lives across the world and it's great to be able to see and talk to them on Zoom or whatever form and platform. But we hopefully have other relationships where we can have that physical intimacy and hug someone and have the smile and the eye contact and, and just feel the connection. So yeah, it happens for men and women. And yes, my work right now is is focusing on women only because, you know, I'm a woman and I came into my own awareness and I know I'm not alone. And the research says, you know, through COVID, 41% of women are saying they are heavy drinkers, you know, four to five drinks at a time. And I know I'm not alone. There are millions of us. And I appreciate the pressures a woman feels. Not that men can't understand or empathize, but men, you have your sets of pressures that are equal, but different. And I think it's okay to say we are equal, but different. And, yep. you know, as a mom, what I may experience, the stressors and challenges being a mom are very different. Even though my husband, we, ex we see the challenges with our children in the same way. And we, we both experience them. How we wear them and weigh them can be very different. You know, as a mom, especially, you know, you carried that baby. You you may have breastfed that baby for a time. Like there, there are different relationships and mm -hmm. connections that I, I feel I can speak to, even though growing up a tomboy, I feel very blessed in this. You know, I grew up with, with all guys and I feel very, uh, very comfortable talking to guys like it's like i feel like one of the boys all the time and i feel a, a very different comforts at growing up and as a teenager and a young woman i was actually always more comfortable hanging out with guys and not in a sexual way but in kind of a fraternity way like i right. i grew up that way relating and so i feel now very blessed that i re i can relate to men 
in a non-sexual way that like in a friendship way but i'm very close to women especially my work as a midwife i i totally get all that so yes men and women are great drinkers you you know that from yourself with your own friendships and your yeah. own you know you see it people are drinking all the time yeah and it, it's interesting i mean obviously the question the question applies for alcoholism drug addiction porno addiction yeah. it, it applies to all of that anyway and i respect the fact that you focus on women because it gives somebody the opportunity to say she's been through what i'm going through and she has a better understanding of what i'm going through and a better understanding and can empathize with me and not just understand it and mm -hmm. empathy is a is a wonderful wonderful asset to have because coming at something from understanding it is different than coming from something empathizing with it i empathize with mm. you because i've been through it i've experienced it i understand it from an in-depth perspective not just from a book or watching it on tv yeah. so, i think it's also hard in in our social media world where every everyone looks so perfect and so yeah. happy and you know all of the shots are so curated and photoshopped and it's hard to think that someone else can relate. It's hard to think no. that they're going through what you're going through or that, well, they, they wouldn't be a great drinker. Look how perfect they are. So I think that really makes it hard for us to have those conversations. Yeah, I agree. I think we do, we do talk about a lot in our, in society. However, I think there are, there are certain barriers or there, there is a certain veneer there <laughs> because of social media, because we want to keep our followers or our likes and, or what have you, or we feel someone just won't understand that I'm alone in this. And so I'm glad you, I'm glad you appreciate that I'm speaking with women. It's not to negate men, but I feel like I really want to reach out and say, listen, it's okay if you're questioning, if you're drinking too much, it's, it, it takes a strong person to even question. It's much easier to just go with the flow and not rock the boat and not not stir the waters. And it, it, it does take a lot of strength to even question. Well, and, and, and you know, having an understanding from working with the Domestic Violence Task Force, there was a mm. multi-agency domestic violence task force. So we did preface it with this. Not that any domestic violence is good. But we on the task force dealt with the worst of that. Yes. So in regard to that, um, you know, we watched in purchase in, in got involved with people at their worst and the mm -hmm. best people at their worst. There was no delineation. There was no line. If you were rich, poor, black, white, Asian, Spanish, it didn't matter in certain situations. It, we were all the same in those situations. It, mm -hmm. it didn't. It didn't define you. You by race or culture or class. It. It was something that was inherent in in each one of them. And mm. a thread within all that primarily was alcohol. Yeah. Within that thread, but I understand that struggle. The reason I commended you is because I understand that struggle from a women's perspective from a child's perspective, growing up with it, number one, in yeah. helping those women and those children escape those environments. Wow. You know, because of that. So it gave me 
a deeper understanding. My parent, my mother, and and my brother, and my sister, and I, we had to escape that environment ourselves. So when we can come at it from that perspective, it gives us a more empathetic approach, more than just an understanding to say, it doesn't matter if you're rich, you're poor, you're black, you're white, you're Asian, it doesn't matter. It can happen to anyone that's out there, and including this. I know that you brought up the COVID, um, I, and I had read the same thing, that COVID created a whole new generation of alcohol issues. Right. And so that's why I think right now it's really timely to be talking about this because maybe you haven't become an alcoholic. And yes, you're right. The, the stats about the, the increase in alcoholism through COVID is there. Even if you haven't become an alcoholic, but you know your consumption is different yeah. than pre-COVID, where do you turn? Where do you turn if, okay, I'm not an alcoholic, so what the hell do I do? Like, I don't know what to do, but I I know this isn't good. This won't be good for me. I, I know I want to change. And so it's like giving voice to that. It's right. It's providing a way for people who are struggling and are just like, I don't want to do this, but I'm not going to AA. Like, I'm... Like I'm not waking up and having a drink. I'm not, whatever the case may be, I'm still high functioning. I'm not hitting rock bottom whatsoever, but I just need to change these behaviors. Where do you turn? And so hopefully this is speaking to those people and giving them an opportunity to engage in something that will give them direction. I agree with that. I agree with that. Could you, you just mentioned something here. Um, can we touch on what are some of the telltale signs that you may be a great drinker? Yeah, I think if you are, you know, as I keep saying, if you wake up and you question, you know, am I drinking too much? If you have ever said to yourself, okay, I, I need to take a break. I'm going to stop for you know, a week, 10 days, a month, whatever the case may be, that's a good sign. People who have a healthy relationship with alcohol aren't feeling they need to take a break. The other crazy thing is if you have taken a break and you have been successful, chances are what you did on that day 30 of that break is you celebrated by having a drink. You know, we're really crazy conflicted people that we do something, we feel really good about it. You know, we go on a diet, we lose 10 pounds, and how do we celebrate? We have a banana split. So I, I, I don't really understand, but we do that. So that's another sign. If you're telling yourself you need to take a break. If you're going out for an evening and you, before you go out, you say to yourself, mental note, I'm only gonna have one drink tonight. If you're needing to kind of place limits on what you drink before you go out because you know, oh, if I don't, I'll have two or three, or you say to yourself, I'm only going to have a drink, but you have two or three, chances are you want to step back and reevaluate where you are with, with alcohol. So those are some pretty good indicators um, that you may want to take a reset. Those are some great telltale signs. I'll make sure that... Um, I'm going to write those down and uh, they'll be in the show notes. <laughs> I yeah. think that's something that somebody can use as a little bit of a, um, not really a wake up call, but some advice. Yeah. And if, if you just even do a little mental inventory and you think, okay, so how, how do I live my life without alcohol? Like, what do I do that doesn't involve alcohol? I mean, I know I, I have great friends who I love dearly, but really when we get together, it's, 
usually just sitting around and having drinks and talking. Right. Now the conversation is wonderful and we're not getting out of control, but I try to think, well, what would it be like if we took the alcohol out of that pit? You know, what's that right. friendship like if we take the alcohol out or if you do, you know, you like hiking or you, whatever sport it may be or outdoor activity or something that's healthy, but then you usually end up by going home and cracking a beer open, you know, so just start to do a little inventory and a check. What in your life isn't involving alcohol? And it, and that's a good starting point. Now you, what do you think the first, I mean, um, see if I can get all this in before we go. Yeah. What do you think the first step, if somebody's recognizing that they're a great drinker, um, the possibility that they are, and, and what do you think the first step that they should take in order to, to kind of either start getting help or to recognize that? Yeah. So right now, what I would do is I have a program. It's a 10 day reset. It's called the 10 day reset. It is free. So I'm not, I'm not flagging you for anything. It's the 10 day reset. You can find it on my website, carryshell.com. I would do the 10 day reset. There's also, when you land on my website, there's a gray drinking quiz and we go through lots of questions and, and, and it'll send you feedback about where you're at kind of in the gray drinking world, you know, can, we'll talk about things on the quiz, you know, can you be intimate with your partner without alcohol being involved? Like when was the last time you were intimate and you hadn't had a couple drinks? Can you socialize without drinks? Do you have anxiety and need to have drinks before you can go out socially? Do you need to de-stress with alcohol? So it, it'll take you through. The quiz is a great thing. And as soon as you get to my website, the quiz is there. I would do the 10 day reset. The other thing, even though it's challenging, it is good to talk to other people. And as I have been saying, if you know that your friends consume about the same amount of alcohol you do, it may be hard to get some really honest feedback. And that in itself is a good sign for you that, hey, I like I know we're all drinking the same amount. And even though they're assuring me that I'm okay, in my heart, in my gut, my intuition is telling me, no, it's not okay. Just because we're all doing the same thing doesn't make it right or doesn't make it the healthy approach to my life that I want to have. But it is good to talk to your friends about it and to your partner or family, whatever your situation is, because you may be the one that helps to inspire them to start asking the questions themselves. You know, you could bring up these questions to your friends like, hey, do you guys ever wonder if you drink too much? Are you guys telling, have you ever said to yourself, maybe I should take a break or are you finding that you are telling yourself you should limit yourself to how much you drink when we go out at night? You know, I would do things like, all right, I'm not going to drink for an amount of a period of time, but then I'd, I'd sneak in a glass and I'd think, man, I'm really good. I only snuck in one glass of wine here when I had told myself I was on a hiatus. So we do these things to trick ourselves into thinking what we're doing is appropriate and okay. So just really trust yourself. You know, we're more intuitive and guided by our inner wisdom than we give ourselves credit for. So I think start at those places. Those are outstanding. I appreciate that um, advice. I think that is something everybody needs to go to. Um, I know that you wrote a book. We didn't get a chance to talk about it. 
Um, but can we touch on it briefly here along with your program and how to get in sure. touch with you? Yeah. So the book is called The Great Drinking Reset, and it's a 30-day journey. And in the book, we it's really a program that goes through lots of different things. We do a little cognitive behavior. Don't let that intimidate you. But it is really based on getting people to do you know, some physical activity, some reflection, some mindful work, some meditation, journaling, asking you to stop drinking for 30 days and guiding you through the different steps that you'll, in emotions and phases that you'll experience in those 30 days. In it, I also provide you with guided meditations, link, links to on YouTube for some guided meditations that I've done. And also I share with you All right, you can also click on a tab on my website. It's called Holiday Cheer. And it's just a free, great downloadable PDF of recipes I've put together of really delicious and festive drinks that don't have alcohol for the holidays. So, you know, start thinking about this now. We're already mid-November. Thanksgiving's coming up very soon. And if you're thinking, I want to cut back a bit, Maybe you'll still have a couple drinks over the holidays. Um, maybe you want to offer guests an, an alternative to alcohol drinks. So click on the tab and download the, the Holiday Cheer PDF recipe book. It's really great. And listen, it's set yourself up for success. As I said, we know that people tend to eat more, drink more over the holidays, and no one's asking you to you know, push that too far. But you may just want to start some mindfulness now in your behaviors and just really start taking mental note of, of how much you're drinking and where you really want to be. And also the book is coming out January 10th because I think it's a realistic starting point. You'll get through the holidays, you'll begin the new year, get back into that new year routine, and then you'll be able to just stop and really say, okay, now's time. It's, it's, we're in the second week of January. I think I'm ready to let go of alcohol for a while. And hopefully this book will, will provide you a way to do so. That's fantastic. I really appreciate all your wisdom and your experience that you've kind of shared with us today. And, uh, you know, I look forward to, um, uh, downloading that PDF. I think my wife is going to love your PDF. Yeah, it'll be delicious. They're, they're really yummy. Um, I, this is one more thing before you go. So okay. I know we've covered a lot, but before we go, do you have any words of wisdom you can share? Hmm. I think a big impetus for me that I'd like to share on this journey was that my spiritual and faith life just in the last decade, it, it's been really important to me. And I would love for people just to take time to, to stop. I know we live in a busy world, and I think sometimes that's why we don't have space to really take pause and, and have gratitude in that sense to connecting to the divine or higher spirit, what, whatever your faith system is. But for me, the reason I mentioned that, it was that was the final catalyst for me, that I really wanted to go to prayer and meditation first before I went to a bottle. Like why, why would, if I'm blessed to, to be in this incredible world with knowing that, you know, God is love and, and trusting in that, 
why would I hand that over to wine? And so I'm not here to preach, but I'm here just to offer you a word of encouragement to just take time in your day, even if it's 30 seconds and you just, you're at your desk and you close your eyes, put both palms down on the desk and inhale, exhale deeply for 30 seconds and come back and just feel that sense of peace. Know that you have that within you at all times and know that there are things available to us that are more powerful and beautiful than going to alcohol and having a glass of wine and it's it's always going to give us so much more so that i guess that's the one more thing that i'd like to encourage people that's a profound one more thing um again <laughs> I, I honestly i appreciate everything that you've shared with us i appreciate your journey that you've come through where you've come from and where you're at now in life uh i think that uh, you have the opportunity to motivate and to uh, inspire and educate. That's my intention is to re get to reach people that uh, mm. actually are looking for those that uh, have gone through their journey and, and can help them. And I think you've done that. So thank you for sharing that with us today. I really appreciate you. And likewise, your journey is, is remarkable. And what you have gone through in your life to, to be in the position to not be a victim, but to empower and to do jobs that are just so valuable throughout your life. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Until the next time, I'd love to have a conversation down the road with you. Um, another one. I think that you have much more to share. So until then. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform.